Amen, indeed. It's good to have our hearts prepared to come to the scriptures. It's funny, the uh, first hour is sweet to reflect on uh, the church, and I was telling the church um, the first hour that I had looked into uh, uh, my old office and I saw a picture of uh, Saving Grace Bible Church uh, on our very first official Sunday together. We had taken a, a photo. And I was looking through that picture, the different families, and I noticed uh, some of us have a little more white hair than we did at that time, not naming any names, but the uh, losing them in spots and gaining whiter in other areas. Um, but uh, one of the things I noticed in that um, work was that, or in that picture, is that there were a handful of people who had left the church, and they had left the church altogether, and I was looking back at their lives even now, knowing that those who had left uh, had run shipwreck of their faith. Some marriages that had fallen apart, others had just abandoned the faith altogether. But then I looked at the other families that had stayed or, or even gone on to other ministries where they have continued to grow, and I saw the, the beauty and the benefit of the local body of Christ. That God uses the church to bless us, to grow us and to protect us. And it was demonstrated even as I was looking through that picture and seeing the families and the growth of each of those families and recognizing the grace of God on display. And I recognize again, this is why, just seeing that picture reminded me of why the church could never be replaced by live stream or by viewing it online. Certainly it's helpful in a season when we have a fear of a pandemic and certainly there's seasons when we go through illnesses and other things where we need to hear the word and be connected in some way. But as a long-term replacement, what it cannot produce is the effect of the body mutually caring for itself. What comes when the body comes together and it shares gifts with one another and invest in one another's lives, there is something about that that is designed by God to build us up and to edify us. And so that a healthy congregation functioning as God has designed produces such a riches and joy in our lives, matures us and protects us and uh, grows us in so many ways. And it's that theme that I want to draw our attention to this morning. We're looking at the idea of bringing glory to God and what does a church have to do in order to bring glory to God. And I first said that last week, and the first aspect of this, is that it takes shepherds ministering the truth. I kind of boiled it down to two aspects, pastors and parishioners. And when I use the term pastors, referring to pastors, I mean all elders, all shepherds, all ministers of the truth within the congregation. So when I use the term pastors, I'm not you know, ruling out our lay elders and others. I am simply working for my outline here and easy for us to remember that there are pastors and parishioners cooperating and working together, each doing its part in order to build a ministry that brings glory to God. A pastor shepherding, a minister shepherding to us the truth, 
ministers in such a way that they prove not only to be the godly example, they prove to walk out and, and demonstrate a faith. They're filled with courage. They preach with convictions and teach with convictions. They're able to refute error. They are willing and able to exhort. They regularly call people to follow them just as they follow Christ. They are richly engaged in, again, body life. They are investing themselves in the body. They operate in such a way, again, where we saw out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, they operate like a father who encourages and implores and exhorts. He he implores and pleads with people to follow just as they follow Christ. These are men who believe. They are great examples for us. They encourage us. But it would be faulty on our part to think it's simply the shepherds, it's simply the pastor, it's simply the, the guy who's preaching the pulpit that determines the, the glory of the ministry. In fact, no ministry is effective without a healthy congregation and faithful shepherds who are ministering the truth. You could have Again, uh, a, a wonderful pastor, a wonderful minister, faithful in every way, but have no effect because there's a congregation that will not hear. So we looked at the pastor side, the parishioner. Now we have to turn our attention to the parishioner side. And I recognize, again, in this, uh, maybe to set our thoughts, turn over to Second Timothy chapter 4. We are going to jump around today to a lot of different passages, so get ready to test your Bible knowledge of where books are at. But Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, what Paul demonstrates in this passage for us is a warning to Timothy. And we see both aspects to this. We see the charge to Timothy as one who's going to be a pastor and a shepherd in the church, his preparing his heart, and then the dangers within a parish, a congregation that is not responding to the truth. Paul says this in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. I mean, if there is ever a um, sense in which Paul is raising the bar of accountability for Timothy, it's right here. Timothy, I am charging you in the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that we anticipate is coming back to set up his kingdom and to bring judgment to the whole world, I am charging you as certain as Jesus' return comes the heaviness of my words here. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Timothy, you need to fulfill your responsibility of preaching and teaching the truth. Whatever the response of others are is not, does not determine your duty. Irrespective of the response, irrespective of the season, whether you're in a season of winter and resistance or you're in the spring and summer, you're seeing fruitfulness, whatever the case, you are to be faithful, Timothy. You are reproving, rebuking, exhorting, 
You're doing this in such a way as to confront error, to bring instruction and understanding. You are correcting where one has gone astray. You are correcting false doctrine. You are bringing the truth. That's your duty. The challenge of it is, verse 3, as he describes, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. That is, that the challenge, and this is the very warning that we would all face, that there are temptations for prayer parishioners to draw to themselves the kind of teachers that would make it easy on them. As Paul gives insight to why that is, they will not endure sound doctrine. They will not go through the difficulties of trying to understand it. They will not go through the difficulties to engage the mind, to wrestle through the truth, and to work through the hard difficulties of that truth. They will not sit there to learn these things. They don't want to endure it, but instead wanting to have their ears tickled. They want to be entertained. They want to be, uh, you know, you want the truth to be easy, the message to be easy, so that they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, that they will then seek those who are going to fulfill their personal desires. That's the challenge that you're going to face, Timothy. It's not necessarily that Timothy was facing that in Ephesus, but that was on the horizon, and that was the warning that Paul was giving Timothy here, that there would be parishes, there would be people of God who had abandoned the pursuit of the truth, abandoned what was right, and cultivated for themselves teachers according to their own desires. I've seen ministries like this, and I'm sure you have as well, where, again, you would have people who were no longer desiring the truth of Scripture, sound doctrine, but again, uh, they didn't want to hear anything that would make them uncomfortable. As a result, they were constantly at war with the truth, subtly undermining it, subtly speaking in subversion to the truth, using their money, their time to undermine the truth so as to create a better environment. All of that is usually done with the seemingly the best interests in mind. Well, we want to be able to reach more people, and that won't let us reach more people. We want to be effective to where people's at. Or it's too much for people. People can't handle it. I kind of chuckle myself. I've been many times where someone came up and said to me, you know, it's just you preach it's too much for people. And I just want to lead them over to a little old lady in our church and say, talk to this gal here. And if it's too much for her, then I will agree. But for her, when she keeps telling me, keep ministering the word, keep coming, I, I want to know more. I recognize, uh, you know, that the Lord, again, it's not too much for us when we have an appetite for the truth, when we want to learn. I understand, again, there is too much. It's too much for me. I have to bring up notes up here, right? So there is, I understand there's too much information to fully grasp it all in, but that's why we record it, so you can keep going back and keep learning, keep growing. There are those particular groups that are subtly hostile to the truth, subtly suppressing, subtly pushing against it, 
and they don't want to change. They don't want the hard work of coming under the truth. Again, they are, like the Pharisees, too proud to see any flaw in themselves. And so they resist. But I've seen on the other side as well, I've seen good congregations who love the truth, faithful congregations, caring, sacrificial, godly people who love righteousness, but not being fed by their pastors, not being equipped. They're being misguided, misdirected, willing to do, willing to care, willing to sacrifice in every way, but they're given shallow messages and they aren't being fed. They aren't being directed and the effect of those who are in this case, their lives filled with worry, lives filled with, with the brokenness, lives filled with corruption because they have been misguided and misdirected. They're filled with burdens and filled with difficulties because they're not being given the truth to sanctify their hearts and minds. So I know then, effective ministry that's going to bring glory to God is filled with shepherds who are preaching the truth and a congregation that is longing for the truth, a congregation that is responding to the truth. The two working together produces, again, a glory that is ever-increasing. And that's what I want to draw your attention to this morning then is a congregation that is bringing glory to God a parish that is responding to the truth. And there are, again, many examples in the New Testament that we can go to. But the way as I worked through the study, I, I did this. I went through all of the one another's in the New Testament, and I just categorized the one another's, looking at what was being stated from Paul's writings and Peter's and others as they were, and John's as they were talking about the one another's and how the church should be interacting with itself. And I categorized it into five categories. So that here is the summary statement, and then we'll unpack it for you. So if you don't get it in the summary, you'll get it as we work through our outline. A God-honoring congregation walks in love pursues the truth, obeys the living God, invests in the mutual care and encouragement of the body, and demonstrates a natural affection. So there is love, there is the pursuing of truth, there is the walking in obedience, there is the protecting and encouraging of unity, and there is a natural affection in God's people. All of this, again, flows from the one another's, and this is the case that I will try to build in our remaining time together. This is a healthy body of believers that reflects these things. So when we look at the church, and I've heard you know, many people talk about the church, say, well, the church is for unbelievers. The church is so we can reach out. The church is so that we can make people feel safe here and come here. I said, no, the church is the people of God. And the people of God are edified and built up when they are demonstrating these qualities. The first is they are a congregation that walks in love. It demonstrates the very love of God. Start with this. Let's just turn over to Romans chapter 12. And we see this. I mean, regularly, the Bible says a lot about our love. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Notice what 
Paul says there. Let us or let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. Notice there in verse 10, be devoted in brotherly love. This is a command. This is, we are to be regularly demonstrating love to one another. And our love, as verse 9 indicates, is not to be with hypocrisy. We're not to be walking in evil. We are actually rather to be abhorring evil and clinging to what is good. And it is out of this walking in righteousness that we are demonstrating love to the brethren. Turn over to chapter 13. Paul brings out again, 13 and verse 8. Paul says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Notice, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. To walk in love is to walk morally upright, is to walk in righteousness. Paul says, again, owe nothing, you just walk in this love. Turn over to the book of Galatians. This comes out again in Galatians chapter 5, this theme of love to one another. Context of Galatians chapter 5 you have the personal struggle of uh, believers under the law and in the relationship to the law. And Paul brings out this in uh, Galatians 5 and verse 13. He says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He's saying, again, you're not living under the law and the law is forcing you to obey. You're living under the new principle, the law of love. You are to be filled with love, loving one another. And that love manifests itself in a way that it serves others, cares for them. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. This comes out again in Paul's writings, Ephesians chapter 4 and uh, 1 and 2. Paul says, therefore, I the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance, notice, for one another in love. There is a care for one another, an accepting of one another, an embracing of one another that comes in the body of Christ. There is a love and appreciation for what God is doing. Across cultures, across generations, across different ethnic backgrounds, across family dynamics that are different. There's a learning and appreciation and loving for what God is doing in our midst. That is what rules among God's people. I mean, again, it almost uh, seems... As uh, we move on in life, we find the certain areas of our life that are comfortable to, to us, and we resist those other areas outside of us. Well, that's fine in your personal life. When you go home, you don't have to eat what I eat or watch what I watch or do what I do, uh, other than what the Scriptures call us to do. 
But when you come to the body of Christ, these are your brothers and sisters. Look around. These are your mothers and fathers. These are the people that God has called out and brought together. And there is a sense, this phrase here, we are to show tolerance for one another in love. You tolerate me as I preach. I tolerate you as we talk about theology and work through matters. We appreciate, we accept, we embrace one another. This is the growing effect of love ruling in our midst. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. See this come out in Paul's writing to the Thessalonians. Same theme. 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 12 says this, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. For all people, just as we also do for you. Here's what Paul's request is for the Thessalonians, that there would be an abounding love, an increasing love. A love that keeps on growing and maturing. A love that keeps on demonstrating, meaning that our love cannot be exhausted. It's an inexhaustible expression of love that continues to grow in our midst, continues to mature. And I love this, because the church goes through different seasons all the time, who has different needs and different burdens, and new people get to step up and fill in those burdens, and we continue to see the love of God on display, ever-increasing. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 9, Paul brings us out again. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. That is to say, you know this, Thessalonian believers. You understand that that you are because God has taught us to love one another. You know you're to be filled with love. Turn over to chapter or to Second Thessalonians chapter one and verse three. Paul says this of the church there, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. Why? Because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. That is, again, you are a body of believers that continues to express love for one another. And it is this particular aspect of the Christian life that is demonstrated here. This isn't love indiscriminately to all people. This is a particular love of God's people for one another. You grow in this love, and it is as The verse here indicates here, it is a growing love, becoming greater and greater. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. And then our scripture reading this morning through 1 John chapter 4, over and over again, we are called to love one another. Because of God's love for us, we love others. So that we could summarize it like this. A ministry that is growing in love is demonstrating these qualities. It is loyal. There is a loyalty. I.e., that's how we were devoted to one another in love. It is morally upright. It walks in holiness and righteousness. That's how love fulfills the law of God. 
It is a love that serves. It is a love that is patient and long-suffering. It is a love that is increasing and abounding. It's a love that covers sins and forgives. It is a love that is obedient to God. It's a love that knows God. And it's a love that is perfected among God's people. That is a congregation. That is a people that brings glory to God. There is a God-produced, God-wrought love in the body that is morally upright and good and manifested among its people. So that the people operate in selflessness, the people operate sacrificially, the people operate in such a way that they're caring for others' needs and seeking the good of others. They are operating in this kind of profound love and it doesn't stop after one season or after a good week or a good month. It is ever increasing and maturing. And again, it is in those verses we mentioned, it goes beyond loving just the people you're comfortable with. I mean, it goes beyond just loving the people that are like you. It is loving all of the people of God kind of selfless and sacrificial way. Again, I would say, no ministry can truly know that it is demonstrating the love of God until they can demonstrate love to people that are not like them. So you can love somebody older than you or younger than you, somebody with different cultural backgrounds, different color of skin, different traditions or backgrounds. So you can see and demonstrate the very love of God pouring out to all those people because of the gospel, because of the work of Christ, because of what he has called us to. You don't really know if you truly love until you can demonstrate these very qualities. And that is a congregation, again, that is bringing glory to God. The second aspect of this is a congregation that pursues the truth. A congregation that pursues the truth. To see this, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we see this pursuit of the truth in the Thessalonians. This is a great example for us. There is within the people of God an increasing hunger for truth. An increasing desire to know God, to know the truth. You know this by even experience. That when you're in the midst of a trial and difficulty and you get a clear glimpse of God and his purposes, peace immediately rushes in. You have confidence. First Thessalonians 2, we saw this last week in verses 1 through 12. Paul describes his earthly ministry amongst the Thessalonians. He described his labors among them at some points laboring like a mother, tenderly caring. At other points laboring like a father, exhorting and imploring and encouraging. And then it comes to verse 13 and 14 when he says this, For this reason we also constantly thank God That when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, notice, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. There was, again, 
in the response of the Thessalonians to listen carefully to what the Apostle Paul was saying, but then to fix in on and receive the word of God, to receive the truth. They had honored the truth. Again, they were, in one sense, training their hearts to be receptive to the truth. This is, again, a healthy kind of people, a healthy congregation the one who is receiving and then uh, embracing the word of God when it comes to them. That's why that phrase there, when you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of man, not as if it was coming from Paul and his companions, but he accepted it for what it really was, the very word of God. How would they be able to do that? They would have to be able to take what they heard there and go against the truth and see if it lined up. And when they did, they recognized it for what it was, the very word of God. That is a good, again, a good congregation. Those who can filter through and recognize the very truth that is of God and affirm that and uphold it and protect it. I mean, again, we all fill in, as we all mean, we teachers, usually fill in in the white spaces and even at times interject some of our sanctified reasoning, sanctified uh, perspective as we are trying to bring clarity to the matter. But there is a distinction between that sanctified reasoning and what is the very word of God. A congregation is training itself, desiring to know and receive exactly God's word. So that this reason, as Paul stated here, as they ministered, they would accept it. And what would it do? It would produce its work in you who believe. There is a sense for all believers that we know this. It's the word of God that enriches our lives. It is the very word of God that gives truth and produces life. It's the word of God that produces peace, and it brings joy. It's the word of God that protects us, protects us from error, from wandering. It's the word of God that stabilizes our life so that we're not tossed here and there. It's the word of God that corrects us when we have gone astray. It informs our heart. It's the word of God that exposes faults within us. It's the word of God that will not mislead us. It will not harm us. It will not rob us of anything good. And it's the word of God that produces righteousness within us. So we long for it. I think if you can turn over to 1 Peter 2, this is what I know to be true about every born-again believer. Everyone born of God is reflected of this verse right here in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Peter says this, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Every believer born of God has a longing for, like a newborn baby, to long for the milk of the word. Things choke it out. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Sin can choke out those desires. Or those things put aside like babies who are hungering for the truth, longing to know. 
So that a congregation, again, that is going to glorify God is a congregation that is receptive to the truth, desiring the truth more and more, encouraged by it because they know the effects of the truth in their life. And so that they would be what Paul said to the Colossians in Colossians 3.16 when Paul says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. There is a congregation receiving the truth and dwelling in the truth and meditating upon it. That is the sign, again, of a ministry that is going to bring glory to God. The reason why is because in the midst of that, no other voice rivals God's voice. That's why it's important. We're not looking for the voice of men and the wisdom of men. We're not looking for new ideas. In fact, I'm terrified if I come up with a new idea that has not been presented historically. If it has not been presented, defended, worked out within the church historically, I abandon it immediately right there. I must be wrong. My interpretation must have been out of line. There's no way the church missed it until 2022, and I came along. No, the church has the truth, seeks has been given the truth, given the very word from God, and is ministered to from his word. This leads to the third category, the third aspect of a congregation, a parish that is growing. It's a congregation that obeys the living God. It's a congregation that obeys the living God. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We see this example in the Thessalonians. chapter 1, Paul describes his ministry among the Thessalonians. He describes coming to them and and bringing the truth to them. And as he came to them, verses 8 through 10 describes their response. He says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. I mean, so what Paul's saying here is it was evident that you were responsive to the gospel. The gospel came, you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and even after we left, you continued to believe. And when people came and visited you, you your testimony sounded forth so that it overflowed into the regions around Macedonia and Achaia, and then every other place, they all talked about what happened in Thessalonica. Verse 9, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. You had this faith, this faith that demonstrated itself publicly, this faith that was manifested in such a way that uh, all could see it. You turned away from those idols. You turned away from that former life that you used to have, and now you walk in a public demonstration of faith to serve the living God, verse 8. You turn to the living God and you follow the living and true God. You didn't have a private faith. It was a very public faith. 
a faith that demonstrated itself externally in obedience to God. And they were known for their conduct. They were known by their works. They were known by the evidence of their faith. It surrounded every region. The talk of it was all around. So that there is the, within the demonstration of a healthy congregation, there is an example of faith and godliness that is evident to all. You can see their love. You can see their affection for the living God and their obedience to him. I mean, we were called to this. Scriptures call us regularly to walk in obedience. First Peter says like this, First Peter one twenty two, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, then he says fervently love one another. Because you're in obedience, because you look to walk in the obedience to the truth, therefore we love one another. Let me show you this again from a different passage. Turn over to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. This calling to holiness is fundamental calling of the Christian life and is demonstrated right here in John's opening words to this epistle. And John draws our attention into his discussion here to talk about, in verse 1 there, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's saying, from the personal experience I had in ministry, to see that eternal one, the one who spoke to us, the one we have seen and heard and touched, the one we've experienced with all of our senses, This one came and gave a message to us. Verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. John is just saying, I am taking a message that is given to me, and I am a channel by which I am delivering it to you, so that you you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Say, okay, John, you've set up your credibility. We know why we should listen to you. Because you have experienced firsthand, as a firsthand witness, the word that was from the beginning. So what's the message? Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. That God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. The message is that God is perfectly holy. He is without fault. He is perfect in all of his perfections. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Those who are in darkness don't have fellowship with the light. The rest of the book of 1 John then goes on to distinguish between those who are children of God and those who are not and is a series of tests to prove And what should happen if you're found to have been fallen short, what you need to do to be reconciled with God in the confession of sins and the turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Point being in it is John's emphasis from the very beginning as he starts his epistle here is emphasized God's people walk in holiness. They walk in the light. They are obedient to God. 
They are God-glorifying, God-honoring. They are seeking righteousness. That is a congregation that honors God. And we could go and see out of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, not only does it stop with us practicing righteousness, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 reminds us that a healthy congregation is exhorting one another to walk in love and good needs. Listen to this. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Not only does it, are we a congregation that walks in obedience, but a congregation that mutually encourages and helps one another to strive in obedience. To stimulate one another to love and good deeds. To keep practicing the truth. That is, a, again, one of the marks of a faithful congregation. The fourth mark of a faithful congregation is this. It's a congregation that invests in the mutual care and encouragement of the church to persevere in unity. They invest in mutual care and encouragement in order to preserve unity. So many passages here, and this is predominantly where most of the verses fall into this category of a being of the same mind, to be in unity with one another, to be encouraging one another and using gifts, your personal gifts, to build up one another. Like, for example, 1 Peter 4.10, which says, as each one of us has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That is to say, God has given you a particular gift. He's given you... Uh, a gift to use within the body and that you exercise that gift and it builds up and it strengthens the body of Christ, helps people grow. Look at other passages. Turn over to Romans 12. I'll show you Romans 12 and verse 16. Paul brings out here in Romans 12, <clears throat> This truth. It says, Rejoice. Yeah, Romans twelve sixteen. Actually, it says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. And then verse seventeen, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all, my, all men. There, verse 16, we are to be of the same mind towards one another. There is a, a preserving unity, a protecting unity that should be demonstrated among God's people. It's a congregation that invests to mutually care for and encourage and cultivate this unity. And I would say this, the only way that a body of people, a group of people, even as diverse as our people here, the only way we'd be able to have a kind of unity is that all of our minds are taken to the truth of God's word. You're not going to like my personal preferences. And I know I don't like your personal preferences. We're not going to like one another's you know, forms of entertainment or one another's, uh, you know, again, different personal desires. 
but we all can appreciate the glories of God together. We can all appreciate the work of the Spirit. We can all appreciate the power of prayer. We can all appreciate the riches of God's truth and the way it sanctifies our hearts and minds and it it puts out fears and it crushes idols and it builds us up and encourages us. That much we can all appreciate together and regularly talk about. And with it brings a unity. We may have differences of how to make decisions But when we start to work through the differences of how we make decisions, we find a unity around a common practice. We find a unity around the truth and a common goal and a common objective and bringing glory and honor to the Lord. Paul goes on, if you look over chapter 14 and verse 13. This is interesting because in chapter 14, Paul begins to discuss the nature of uh, um, what we would call gray areas or Christian liberties. And what do we do when we express our Christian liberties and we draw lines at different places? You know, you have some who would never go to a movie and you would have others that go to every single movie possible. And the world of differences within those and there would be conscience burdens when you see the the different choices that people make and say, all right, how do we walk through our different perspectives in regards to the exercising of our Christian liberties? Paul says this in verse 13, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to be an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. What he's saying here is that a con- a congregation works at making sure that they are not the personal stumbling block for others. So yes, I freely give up my liberty so as not to cause you to stumble. Freely give up my liberty if it means that I gain credibility that I could be a minister to you in some way. I'll freely give up any personal pursuit if it means that you would be protected. That is the idea of a congregation that cares for itself, that it preserves unity even if necessary, giving up of personal preferences, personal, again, liberties that they would have in Christ. In this context, was that of foods and what foods you would eat. Down verse 19, notice what he says there, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. What does the church pursue? Pursues peace protects it, it builds up, it edifies. Chapter 15, notice chapter 15, verse 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement, notice, grant to you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. That would be God's heart, would be our hearts. God's mind, things that God delights in, each one of us would delight in that same thing. Jump down to verse 7. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Verse 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and notice, and able to admonish one another. There's a mutual exhortation and a mutual encouragement that comes within the body of Christ that protects, encourages, preserves unity. 
This may look like when somebody comes along and, and says something that impugns the motive of somebody else and you call it out. This may mean when somebody has a false idea and you say, well, let's go back to the scriptures to see what the scriptures say. It may mean that you have to work hard to distinguish between what a personal preference is and what a principle of scripture is. And we uphold the principles and we allow the freedoms of preferences and the distinctions. One more quality of a congregation brings glory to God is this. It's a congregation that shows a proper and natural affection and care for one another. When you go through all the one another's and you read each one, this group of one another's comes out. And I didn't even know what to do with it. In fact, I was tempted just to leave it. And you'll see why here in a second. But I recognize that there is, within the body of Christ, a natural and normal affection, a familial kind of affection that is demonstrated. I think about it. Paul said it to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, when he says to Timothy, Timothy, you are to treat older men as fathers and older women as mothers, and you are to treat younger men as brothers and younger women as sisters. You see everyone as brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. There's, you see everything in a familial sense. And there's a, just a natural affection that comes for the people of God. Listen to these verses, these one another's, four of them. Romans 16, 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Romans sixteen twenty, All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13.12, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Peter 5.14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. You see why I was tempted to drop this particular section of verses? I said the first hour, I can't even imagine hugging Pastor Eric, let alone greeting with a holy kiss. But what I do know is this, and I have seen it among God's people, and I appreciate it, that there is a natural affection that is demonstrated among God's people. I'm reminded of it when I go to Argentina and I am kissed on each cheek. I am reminded of it when there is just a genuine love and affection, a hug, an embrace. There is a sense, again, where among God's people that we recognize beyond just words of appreciation, appropriate, natural affection that is demonstrated among God's people. We cultivate it. Again, I'm not asking you to go outside of your personal comfort zones or anything like that, but I'm saying that you embrace what would be natural and affectionate natural in regards to care and concern so that, again, God is demonstrated and honored. And I can say, again, as I just recently got back from Argentina and I've seen you know, pastors and other men shepherding who I hadn't seen in a couple of years other than over Zoom, and immediately the, the embracing with hugs and the mutual encouragement. It was the reminder of, yes, this is normal among God's people because we care for one another. So again, a congregation that is honoring God is marked by love. 
It is marked by a hungering for the truth. It is marked by obedience to God. It is marked by preserving and protecting unity and encouraging it. And it demonstrates a natural and godly affection to one another, building up one another. I think it's in this midst, again, this is only produced as a work of God. It isn't produced by the wisdom of man. It isn't produced by men's creativity. It's produced because God regenerates our hearts and he brings together regenerate members who have, again, a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and a love for him, and they begin to express that love and appreciation and response to the truth towards others. So my exhortation and encouragement is this. Let us mutually help one another to keep striving in this way. You keep pressing the shepherds, pastors, and teachers of this ministry to be faithful to their calling and duty. As they keep pressing you to be faithful to your calling and duty, and as we mutually exercise our responsibilities, holding one another accountable, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, may then, at that point, the glory of God richly dwell in our midst. And our hope would be that as we walk in these footsteps, that our testimony will outlive us. That, they, that others would be able to look back and say, indeed, the glory of God ruled in their midst and we rejoiced in it. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for these truths. These things are, <clears throat> again, are rich reminders of your mercy and grace in our midst. That you have, indeed, given us everything pertaining to life and godliness in the scriptures, but then you've given us your spirit and you've given us the body of Christ for accountability and encouragement and you continue to build us up. And so we just pray, may this ministry continue to strive to demonstrate the riches of your glory so that in all things we point not to us, but to you, ruling and reigning, that your glory would be evident so that even the prince of the paladies of the air, or even of the angels who would see your glory on display and give you praise. For we're thankful just to be a small part of this marvelous work. And we pray again, Father, as we leave this place, as you open up opportunities for us to serve, that you've put good works before us that we should walk in. May we have our hearts and minds and senses trained to see those things so that we would quickly respond to it. Our body would be protected in love and hungering for truth and obedient to you and in guarding unity and showing a natural care for one another. It's in your blessed name we pray. Amen.